Oh, it is, huh? Okay. Well, I don't receive that in Jesus' name. I don't know about that 90 degrees, man. Is that how that works? Oh, okay. It don't work that way. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Hey, would, would you turn in your Bibles tonight? We're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 22. And it is the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac. And the bumper sticker theology we're covering tonight is simply this. God is my co-pilot. How many of you know that God is not our co-pilot? God is our pilot, amen? And now that I see Mr. Merritt, sorry I didn't see him earlier, we're going to pray for an offering. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give to missions tonight. And we thank you for our wonderful elder Tim, who's always on the spot, ready to help. God, we give you praise and thanks for it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Hey, so if you're in, if you're in the book of Genesis, uh, just keep your finger there at Genesis chapter 22. And I'm going to read one verse of scripture that's very, uh, I think is very familiar to all of us. And, and it comes from John chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus is talking about being the vine and his father is the vine dresser. And then he calls his followers the branches. And Jesus says in John 15, 5, he makes this statement that I think helps us understand how this relationship with God works. He says, without me, you can do nothing. Now, when you see that word nothing, I think in the Greek it means nothing. I don't think it means some things or a few things. It means no things. Okay? So there's absolutely nothing you can do that's worth anything without Jesus. So, here, so, so here's the idea. When people uh, in the world hear about God and hear about the, the goodness of God, what God can do, many times before they give their heart to God and say, Jesus be Lord, they want to first just have Jesus as Savior. Okay? Instead of being a... Uh, Instead of being the steering wheel, they want to make Jesus the spare tire. So, so, so if, they, if they have an accident or they hit a bump in the road of life, if something comes along their way, you know, it kind of goes like this. God, I've got this. Don't worry about it. I got this, God. Until I don't, then you can have it. And it doesn't work that way. God is not your co-pilot. He is the pilot. And you get to ride in that plane. God isn't really co-anything with us. Understand that. We're, we're, uh, we don't share this with him. He is God and God alone, and we are his people. And we have our place. And if you want to serve God, you, you must understand that he is, he is first and we're behind him. And we're going to kind of land that plane tonight, especially with the words of Peter, who right after saying that Jesus in Caesarea Philippi is the Son of God, the Messiah, in the very next chapter in Matthew, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to die. And Peter comes back with, not so, Lord. No, not so. You're, you're not going to do that. And we're going to land the plane on the fact that Peter actually rebuked him. He rebuked the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Right after saying your boss, you're the Messiah, you're the King, in the very next chapter, the actually next passage of that chapter, Peter is saying, here's what you will and won't do. 
And I'm going to talk about that a little bit at night, how we do the same thing. But we got to start with Abraham because there's a story there that kind of helps us. Because I think we're okay with giving God all our problems. We just don't want to give him everything we love. We want to lay down the things we love the most. We're okay with him being Savior. It's when we get to the Lord part that it's like, wow, (laughs) that's tough. I want to tell you a story about where this saying uh, comes from. The idea, God is my co-pilot. Got a picture here for you. This is Colonel Robert L. Scott. He flew in the United States Air Force during World War II. He had to lie to get in. He was too old, actually, to join the war. But once the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, he was so just full of passion and vinegar. He had to get in the fight. He had to get into the war right away. So he lied in order to get in. Within two months of being a pilot, he earned his first ace. That's how good he was. By the end of World War II, he was a double ace, and he had downed 13 Japanese planes. He was quite a fighter pilot. Towards the end of the war, he took on shrapnel from several of the Japanese guns, and the shrapnel almost destroyed his plane, came through his plane, and how many of you know when that, when that stuff blows up in the sky, it, not just, it, it don't just hit the, the plane you're flying in, it hits you too. So having his body just absolutely covered in shards of metal, he's pulled into a cave where a doctor begins to operate on him. And they do it without anesthetic. You want to talk about tough as nails. Well, this, this doctor that operates on him has a little Chinese assistant I'm sorry I said little. Um, had a Chinese assistant. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> I'm just not ready for prime time, folks. Gotta help me here, okay? Uh, had a big Chinese assistant, anyway. And this Chinese assistant says to this fighter pilot, he says, you know, there's nobody that flies like you. You're fearless. You go into enemy territory. You're able to, uh, you're able to fearlessly fight the enemy. And in the process, you come back home and you fight like a barbarian, like a complete, that's what he said, like a complete barbarian. Who is in the plane with you that makes you fight that way? The old colonel sat up and he said, God is my co-pilot. Later, he writes a book that became a bestseller and actually was turned into a movie in the late 60s. Uh, Warner Brothers put it out, God is my co-pilot. So that's where the saying comes from. The colonel did not mean that God is someone sharing the piloting with me. What the colonel meant to say in context was, God is flying me as I fly the plane. But we've taken it out of context because we want to justify saying to God, I'll share this walk called my life with you. You stay over here, God, in a place that I'm comfortable with you, and you be there in an emergency when I need you. Until I need you, I got this. And God says, oh no, I will allow you to go through things that will hit your plane. I will allow you to even be wounded if I have to, so that you realize that God has got this. And that's the difference. There's even a truncated gospel that's been preached, at least for my lifetime, that has said, just come to God when you need a favor. 
In fact, one of my favorite uh, singers out today, a uh, country singer called Jerry, uh, Jelly Roll. Have you heard of Jelly Roll? We were talking about Jelly Roll the other day. And he's got a song, and it, it, he tells the truth in this song. He says, I only talk to God when I need a favor. And I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. So who am I to expect a Savior if I only talk to God when I need a favor? But God, I need a favor. Isn't that how it is? I'm humble right now, Lord. You can have my life now until you get me through what I'm going through. And then when I'm back in the pilot seat, I won't talk to you again. Isn't that something? I want to talk about how God shows us what true lordship and trust is. And he did it with his people through Abraham and his son Isaac. Um, One of the things we've got to take in here is that for a very, very long time, most of what you would call God's people were illiterate. Okay? So, so today we're, we're all readers. We, we know that readers are leaders, right? But most of God's people for some time were illiterate. And so what God did was, is he used big picture stories. So that through, this is a good phrase, you might want to remember it. Oral transmission or oral tradition. Through oral tradition, these stories could be passed along and not have error in them. A majority of the Old Testament has oral tradition in it. A lot of the New Testament has oral tradition in it. You have to to hold on to that. Today, we make copies of copies of copies of copies. But there was a time when people didn't have pen. They didn't have books. They didn't even have paper. They didn't even have papyrus. God did really big things, and then they had to pass that story along accurately. Now, if you were God and you wanted to teach your people what truly following him required, you're going to have to have a story from the start that would give your people exactly what that looked like, a model, an example. And that story has to be so brutally truthful and honest that as it's passed along, people would never forget it. Are you with me? That is the story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. That's why God had to do it the way that he did it. We're going to cover a couple other things here in just a second too. But this is what we learned from that story. That God is saying, if you really want to love me and serve me, it means all of you. Not just the parts of you that you're uncomfortable with, the boo-boos, the pain the problems, but also the promises. So we're easily giving God our pain, easily wanting God to take all of our uh, predicaments. But God says, what about giving me back my promise? Isaac was the promised child, promised my God. And know this, it took 24 years after God had said to Abraham and Sarah, that they'd have a son, that they had Isaac. Imagine God giving you a promise, waiting 24 years for that promise to come to pass. Then that promise finally comes to pass. And imagine that promise now grows up, becomes a late teenager, early 20-something man at that time. That's what they considered, a man by that time. And now God is saying, okay, you're going to give the promise back to me. In fact... I promised you that through that child, you would become the father of many nations. But guess what? For right now, 
you're going to put them on an altar. Now, that should bring some tension. You, I know we, we have historical bias. We, we have heard that story so many times that to us, it's like, well, yeah, right? But watch this. We forget that there's real flesh and blood people in the story, and we forget that they didn't know what we know now. They had no idea where the, how this was going to end. They had no idea where this was going to lead to. They had to trust God even though it didn't make a lick of sense. And we're not trusting God for the pain and the predicament. We're trusting God for the promise. You promised me, and now you're, you're telling me to give it back to you. And the way you're telling me to give it back to you is really weird. Watch this. Only the Canaanites in that area at that time divulged in child sacrifice. Now this is important because there are skeptics that when you talk about the Old Testament, they're going to say, oh, you serve that genocidal God. That God in the Old Testament that went through and said, wipe them all out. Right? That guy. Right? Let's break that down for just a moment. Can we just put a little bit of a footnote and come over here and talk about that for a minute and then we'll get right back to offering the promise and how it shows that we trust him as our Lord, not just our Savior. So here it is, okay? The Canaanite people at that time offered their children to Moloch. Moloch was a god that was set up that his arms were so hot that they'd offer their firstborn child on those arms and they'd watch their child be burned alive. You have to understand here, it's not just a people that like, well, you know, I don't know how many people there are in Finley, but it's not just a bunch of people like Finley people that are just going to work, paying their bills, going to church, you know, go, getting a steak every once in a while, planning for the next vacation. These are people for 400 years are worshiping their God through child sacrifice, not humans, child sacrifice. And before you think we're too far away from that, think of how many abortions have happened in this country. We're not far. Now, I want you to see for a second, this is not genocide and God calling his people as they inherit the land to wipe them all out because this is God's judgment. What is being argued here is not, can God be genocidal or not? What is truly being argued here is god just or not and the answer to that is yes god had allowed them for 400 years to burn their children alive not only that we read in the book of genesis that there were the nephilim before the flood and after the flood where do you think the nephilim came from the giants came from that david had to go off and kill come on right it was the Canaanites. There was a strategic plan by the enemy to thwart God's strategy in salvation through the seed of man, right? Coming from God through, eventually it would be Mary, and it was to stop that through contaminating the DNA or the bloodline. So God is saying, I see the future. Can we, can we think in... This is called fourth-dimensional thinking. You and I don't think in one-dimensional thinking. That's a dot. We don't think in two-dimensional thinking. That's a line. We don't 
think in just three-dimensional thinking, that's a cube, right? That's space. We can think in the present, and we can think a little bit in the past. What if I told you that you serve a God that sees the completion of the totality of the future and already sees what that would do to his entire plan to redeem mankind? And what if I told you that he has every right, every right to bring judgment when he wants to? What if I also told you that that would not be murder because that is something that happens between a created being and a created being? What if I told you that your next breath is on loan from God? What if I told you that your Bible says, what does it say about the wages of sin? Death. So we're all at a stay of execution. And God is deciding when we'll come home. That's not your decision. Think about this. Think about this for a second. And God sees this and goes, I'm going to wipe that out. I'm going to stop that. Now, add this to the equation. If it hasn't gotten complicated, it might here, but stay with me. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. So long before Mount Moriah and Abraham and Isaac, long before the Canaanites did what they did, God was able to say, I already have a plan, which is providence, And I already have the power, which is sovereignty, to pull off what I'm going to pull off. And it's not going to be the sacrifice of Isaac. It's going to be the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ. Did you know he died in the same place? Did you know Jesus died in Mount Moriah? That's Mount Moriah still there in Israel today. Golgotha is right there on Mount Moriah. God, 1994 years later, almost 2,000 years later, Jesus comes forth and dies in that very same spot. Now watch this, watch this. This is good. (laughs) Abraham says two things in the story that just blow me away. And there are two things that we can learn from it about making him Lord and not thinking of God as a genie in a bottle that we just rub whenever we're in trouble, right? And get three wishes, right? I'm thinking of some really stupid movies right now. I don't want to quote any of them because you'll go out and rent them and they're dumb. Okay. So I think Shaq was in one that anyway, anyway, anyway. (laughs) so there is this moment where Abraham is with his son, Isaac. He loads up his son, Isaac, with the wood. Isaac carries the wood up the hill. We see the typology here of Jesus. We know that the son carries the instrument of sacrifice. We know that Isaac does it. We know later Jesus does it. And Abraham says to the son, after Isaac says, Dad, where is the sacrifice? We've got everything else. We don't have the sacrifice. What's interesting is Abraham says to the son, Isaac, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. Ready to have your mind blown? After it's all said and done, a ram is caught in the thicket. God actually staves the hand of Abraham from killing his son, stops him from doing it, (laughs) and the ram is there. When it's all said and done and the ram is sacrificed to the Lord, Abraham, upon walking away with Isaac, calls the place the Lord will provide. Future tense. Didn't he just provide? 
I hope somebody got that. I hope somebody got that. He didn't call it God has. He did. He, he did provide. Oh, yes, he did. But he didn't call the place that. He called it God will provide. Abraham, by faith, could see ahead past even the ram and could see ahead to a day. 1994 years later, fourth dimensional thinking by faith. He could see by faith that God had already planned by his providential power and sovereignty that Jesus was the one that would be offered there and not Isaac. Now, 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 now. That's not all that happened. Before they went up the mountain, there's these servants. And they're there at the foot of the mountain. And they stay there. And Abraham says, stay in this place. The boy and I will return. He doesn't say, I will return. He says, the boy and I will return. Woo-wee! Before the event and after the event, Abraham is seeing something by faith, calling things that are not as though they are. And he's doing it because he knows that God's plan is bigger than he can see in the moment. Now, there's two theories on that. What would, the, what would theory number one be? That we'll get to the top of the mountain and God will stop me and he'll provide something else. That's not a bad theory. That's the way it worked out. <laughs> Good shooting, Tex. Theory number two. They'll get to the top of the mountain. He'll take the life of his son but God will resurrect him. You say there are no resurrection stories during that. Yes, there were plenty out of Egypt, plenty in the world at that time. Here's what's interesting. With the story of Abraham and Isaac, we see only part of that. But with the story of the son of God and his father, we see both. Both that God provided and that God would resurrect. Come on. So what what tempts me at times is to see in the temporal dot position, you know, that first dimensional or one dimensional, two dimensional thinking. I can't see past this dot. I can't see past this line. I can't see past the present and the space that I'm in to know that this will add up to anything wonderful or glorious in the future. I want to tell you right now, in Christ, everything you're going through is going to add up to glory. Your, everything you're going through is going to add up to glory. Every bit of it. It doesn't look like that now. Can you say like Abraham, God will provide? Even after he provided just a little bit here, Abraham said, no, I know there's more. I wonder if there's anybody in here believes tonight that there's more, that God has more. Yes. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says... By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Understand this. God, you promised me something. If I do now what you're telling me to do, I won't receive everything you said back then. Leave it to God. Leave it to God. 
It doesn't make sense. Leave it to God. It doesn't add up. Leave it to God. You can't see everything that he's doing. Leave it to God. God's got a plan. And God's got the power to pull it off. (laughs) So we need to see a couple other things here. Because if we're not careful, we'll crash the plane in telling God and what he can and can't do. I want to fast forward a little bit um, to the story. We're going to kind of close with this story. We actually find it in uh, the book of Matthew. And if you don't mind turning there. You'll see, that, you'll see it in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, let's begin with uh, verse, seven, uh, verse 21 of Matthew uh, 16, please. <clears throat> you know where Matthew is, New Testament Matthew. You should open your Bible to the middle, it's Psalms. Go past Psalms, please. <laughs> so, <laughs> verse 21 of 16. It says, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the law. Can I just tell you that Jesus pulled the whole, he pulled the scroll back and told them the whole plan. Do you want to know why, let me tell you something. Do you want to know why God doesn't do that very often? It's because of the reaction of people like Peter. If God were just to roll back the scroll for you and show you the whole entire plan of how he's going to fly the plane and to get, to get you from here to there, you probably wouldn't want to be on that plane. If you've ever been on a plane where there's been turbulence or the pilot had lost his mind, let me tell you, you want to get off that plane very, very quickly. I've been on several of them. I told you early on when pastoring here, I rode a plane and, and the pilot's name was literally Captain Kirk. And I ain't lying to you, and there was a big storm, and we were flying back from Cal- uh, Texas. I was flying back from Texas. We're headed to Chicago, um, and my wife and my kids lived in Chicago at the time. And I remember uh, we, we had to die a diversion because of this big, nasty storm. Man, I love lightning bolts, not when I'm two miles high. Okay, I, I, yeah, it's all cool until you're in a plane way up in there. And I, and I, and I can remember we get diverted, so I, I, we land in Indianapolis, and we miss the runway twice. Then old, old Captain Kirk comes over the PA and says, uh, folks, we're, we don't have a whole lot of gas, so we're going to try this one more time, or we might have to. And I'm like, people are gasping. I mean, it's serious. It's not time for a joke, you know. And I remember, like, I mean, I, I told you before, I was sitting next to a lawyer, and this guy was just, like, saying all kinds of things I can't repeat, you know. And, you know, I'm a pastor. Well, guess what? So You're a minister, too. It's time. It's time. Am I going to trust God or am I going to be afraid? Am I, I can't figure out what's going on. I have no idea who's flying this plane. There's no way to get past that door. All I know is, is I've got a God who knows the beginning from the end. Am I going to trust him? And am I going to be his vessel for faith to this plane? Or am I going to get all freaked out and scared too? Right? So the first thing I did is start to pray out loud. And, and people started, pray, pray over me, pray over me, pray over me. Pray. Everybody's a Christian. I mean, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? Suddenly, we're getting the whole plane saved. Hallelujah, right? We landed fine. We were fine. I had a nice meal at that airport. It was free. Jump back up, head over to Chicago. We're all good. Did God use it all? Yes. If that hadn't happened, guess what? I couldn't have ministered on that plane. Nobody would have listened to me. You understand? These things happen in your life so that the story can be told. Didn't I just teach you an oral tradition? People aren't aren't reading this. 
They're reading you. They're reading the story from you. The Bible calls you living epistles. You, we, we hold the, the gospel in jars of clay. That's what we are, jars of clay. And they're watching us at work and out in the community. And when things go haywire, they're looking for an anchor. You and I are the ones that carry the story of faith. We must come, have stuff coming out of our mouths to our kids, to our people that we work with. God will provide. Are you awake tonight? Yeah. Hallelujah. Some of you, I want to tell you something right now. I'm going to tell you this right now. You think you're going to get out of what God's called you to do. You're nuts. You are, you are nuts. You are bananas. You are just bananas. You think you can serve God and tell him no to anything. <laughs> you can't. He, listen, can I just tell you he's got his ways and means committee? He controls circumstances. He'll get you right to where he wants you. Now, we can do that the short way, in the easy way, or we can do it the real hard way. Okay. So, yeah, Jonah, right? He still ended up where he's supposed to. Praise God. Thank you. So, here is this story with Peter. Peter hears all this stuff. Here's the whole story rolled out. And I love what happens here, man. Well, I don't really love it. It actually makes me fearful. It, it, verse 22. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him. Now, that's modern English. Um, um, the, in the Greek here, it is the word rebuke. He rebuked him. And, and I got to help you, help you here because this ain't, this ain't good. This ain't a, well, you know, sweep it under the rug moment. There, there's actually three words for rebuke in, in the New Testament. I'm going to give them to you here. Uh, momphi, uh, sounds like some kind of uh, spaghetti salad or something, okay? It means to give blame. Electius, it means to correct. He wasn't blaming him. He wasn't correcting him. Here's what he was doing. Epitomeo, it means to assign value for someone to be or something to be someplace or another. This kind of rebuke says you don't belong there, you belong here. You don't do it this way, you do it this way. You can still be you, I'm not going to correct you, I understand you're God and I'm not, but God do it this way. Not so, Lord. He pulls him, the Bible says he pulls him aside, imagine touching the Lord. Right after you just said, hey, you're the Messiah, and you did so because the Father revealed it to you. And the very next thing, I mean, you're all puffed up, you're all puffy, right? In pride, and like, okay. And the Lord starts sharing, hey guys, I'm about to do what I came to do. Peter says, no, come over here. No, 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 no. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to rebuke you, Lord. I'm, I, that's not for you. The same word for rebuke here is the same word that Jesus uses when he rebuked the wind and the waves. The same word, not the other two. He didn't correct the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves are just doing what the wind and the waves do. What Jesus was saying is, you ain't going to do that here. Now, we got a lot of mamas in the house. We know how mamas rebuke. You ain't going to do that here. You're going to do it outside, but you ain't going to do it in here. And you ain't going to do that in my kitchen. Right? And you're going to take your shoes off out there, but you don't bring those shoes in. Come on, help me. You don't bring that in here. You put that outside. Now, I grew up with a brother. He's younger than me, but he was like faster and stronger. Right? I got the brains is what. <laughs> no, I'm no, no, no. He's real smart. He's a regional 
He's the regional director for Hobby Lobby. But uh, we fought all the time. I mean, physically. Loved it. I'd, I'd, we'd break everything. And my wife, my wife later, she's like, I don't know how your, your, your mother put up with you two. You're crazy, you know? But we fought all the time. And my, my mom used to say, you're not going to, not in here. Get it out of here. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he rebuked the demons. You're getting this. You don't do that here. Get over there. Yeah, you'll be in hell soon, right? You're only doing what demons do. You're only, wind and waves, you're only doing what you do, but you ain't going to do that here. And that's the rebuke that Peter uses with Jesus. You can be, you can be my savior, just not that way. Not, not like that. We got another plan, Lord. You know, a bunch of us are zealots. And our plan is to politically make you king. See, you really don't get it, but we love the fact that you're powerful. We love the fact that you're doing miracles and stuff like that, but you don't really get it. It's, we've got this whole, this whole thing set up. You know, we're about to storm Rome, and guess what? You get to be our poster child. And Jesus is like, this is what he says. Now, want this, th- get a hold of this. What does he say to do? Get where? Not co not side he doesn't say get to the side of me satan he doesn't he doesn't say stay in front of me so i can keep an eye on you satan he says get behind me there's no co anything with god you're either following him and in your place and position or you're not For the whole world watching online, here's how you know you're a follower of Christ. He is Lord of all. Or he's not Lord at all. And if he decides in the way he decides and the form he uses and the method he uses and the timing he uses is none yet. It's not your business and it's not mine. It's only his. It's his alone. All right, so we understand our place. We understand God's place. Now we understand what John 15, 5 means. I'm the the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, God wants a relationship with us And in that relationship, he calls us friends. Just like Abraham was called by God, friend. Jesus called his disciples, friends. You know why he called them friends? He says, because my servants don't know what the master is thinking or doing. But you are my disciples, and friends know what the master is doing. God wants to show you and give you his plan. But if you're going to freak out on the plane, if you're going to lose your mind in the middle of what you're you're going through, and you're not going to believe him to get you through the storms of life and land your life exactly where he had planned to all along, you're going to have a hard time hearing God. It's not that God don't want to tell you. He wants to tell you. It's just that 
you're in the wrong seat. You're in his seat. Come on, stand with me and pray.